Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, a platform for empathy. Seeing the rainbow. And I don't have my notes. This is Obstacle Course. Let's vote. So Andrew, you've repeatedly said we're not a political podcast, but here we have a politician on our podcast once again. We try not to be like a politically biased podcast. Right, okay. Uh, although, of course, as everyone on this planet, we do have our own biases, and they probably leak through regardless of what our intention is. But we had Sonia first, so now um, back on the podcast. She was here about a year ago. Yeah. And it's because, as you know, BC, we got an election coming up um, actually in a couple days. Yeah. The election is fast approaching. Um, we actually have a lot of metaphors involving getting to the finish line in this episode. Yeah. And yet, Sonia gave up her time. Uh, big thanks to Maeve, a friend, a great old friend of yours. Um, emphasis on old. Um <laughs> She'll love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, who who connected us once again. Yeah, it was the second time that we've had Sonia on. She's just an incredible speaker. Um, any topic that we delve into, it seems like she has a lot of brilliant, interesting things to say. And, and it's, it's uh, as a lot of you noticed from the debate, she's just a real authentic person. And we we hunger for that in our politics. It It is not a common thing to think, hey, that... that leader that political leader it seems like a real person and maybe some someone who i'd just want to go for a coffee with well and the cool thing is speaking of, of her being real she, she actually provides folks some behind the scenes background of uh, how the debate went in her preparation and we're just gonna like tease you a little bit with that but it is astounding yeah <laughs> what she had to overcome yeah. while the world was watching <laughs> exactly yeah so we and she told us this is the first time that she's told this story yeah um so we we got a exclusive uh, yeah <laughs> yeah that's not often on obstacle course we're we're like ahead of the curve normally oh. we're far far behind they say in journalism you have to be first and uh well, we were this time. First time for firsts. <laughs> so yeah, this is a it's a rich conversation. It's it's super tight as as you mentioned, John, um, before we started recording. But it, it is just it's snappy. We we hit politics. We but we really see Sonia and, and get to know her, which a lot of people in BC are really just finding this n- new leader and 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 she's incredibly approachable and 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 a lot of people are warming to her as as we speak so she's literally been the leader of the green party for like five weeks five weeks and she's like going toe-to-toe with the premier and uh it's it's crazy what she's had to do but i I think she's tracking so quickly and moving so quickly because she really is just an empathetic authentic real person who who is just has a heart for her community i mean that's really why she's doing it yeah her motivation is she's she sees a better vancouver island yeah and a better bc yeah and, and that's that's what's propelling her and yeah. that's that's why even though she's tired at the finish line she doesn't have to eat those nasty gel things because <laughs> she's got a bigger vision getting her home yeah you'll you'll understand the context in a few minutes <laughs> so thanks for being here everybody we, we hope that uh, you enjoy this episode as much as we did and if you do uh we recommend you go back and and listen to the first episode it's quite a while ago uh back in the annals of obstacle course <laughs> But it is a really, it's a great backstory for finding out what um, introduced Sonia to politics and an amazing trip to at, at what then was East Germany with her father. So if you're interested in learning more and, and getting to know Sonia even better, uh, I highly recommend checking that one out. Um, but for now, enjoy this episode and thanks for being here. And go vote! We're rolling now, and let's start by saying thank you for being here. Welcome back, Sonia. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you again, even though we're a little further apart than last time, but thank you so much for coming back on Obstacle Course. You were so much harder to get this time. My <laughs> God, what has happened to you? Jeez, we, we rescheduled like 10 know. times. I told Maeve I wouldn't complain, but here I am complaining. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, just it, blame Maeve. No, actually, I was thinking about this Obstacle Course. It's from the last time that we were together which was so fun and i enjoyed it so much um it literally has been the maybe most enormous obstacle course of my life <laughs> to get here wow yeah, i'm well, sure and it's one of those obstacle courses where you're not just going over things and around things but things are flying out at you <laughs> and jumping at you and pushing you over and tripping you um but here we are amazing so yeah you're even more qualified then i guess uh t- to be here um 
let's talk about that. Let's. Um, how has the experience been? You've been the leader of the party for what, like five weeks or so at this point? It, it will be five weeks on Monday. So we're talking, it's Friday right now. So I'm at four weeks and five days or four weeks and four days or something. What would you say has been the biggest obstacle or the, the most, the, the thing that comes to mind first, if you could really like hone in and narrow it down? To getting to where we are right now, or do you mean of the election campaign? Of of where you are right now, of that um, of that five week period. Oh, well, it's interesting. I would say that from the moment that the election was called, there haven't been obstacles. It's just been a full sprint at full speed with the whole team like a giant relay team everybody's just running my favorite relay race was the 2468 um because we really were really good at that and by the <laughs> time i would get the baton to do the 800 meters we usually lapped the other teams a few times <laughs> um, but that's what this feels like it feels like um we didn't have a lot of time to get ready for the race obviously i had been leader for one week um, <laughs> but the 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 starting gun went off and everybody on the team just somehow found their perfect uh their perfect ability all everything was just amazing that the whole team was able to hit the ground at full speed so we had zero candidates uh the day that the election was announced and in 11 days we had we got 74 candidates on wow. the which is it's incredible. Like literally saying, I had to have conversations with people where I'm like, I know this is a big decision to run in a provincial election. I can give you until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning to make your decision. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like those are not fun conversations. Uh, and so that was incredible. And then we got our platform together. Uh, and it, I'm, I'm not just saying. I, I know I might seem really biased, but I, I'm so inspired and excited by the platform that we have i look at it and i feel hopeful about the future it's a platform of solutions and uh really oriented on what matters the most which is how do we how do we take care of people and how do we make sure that we can thrive and uh and then for me it's just been literally all day every day pretty much doing interviews doing media um, throw in a few debates <laughs> and uh, and there isn't even time to think like there you know it's literally and I think that all the training so if we're thinking of this as still in a sports analogy right um, the three and a half years of being in the legislature working on the files so closely being on the committees um, being so engaged in all of the work means that nobody had to bring me up to speed for this election I it's I know it it's in me I don't need notes I don't need talking points I don't need briefs I just need to talk about what I know and the vision that I have and, for the future. So. and I think that's come through really clearly in the debates which we'll get to in a minute I, I definitely want to talk about that there was a lot of feedback and in a positive sense about your televised debate um, but before we go there I, I wanted to ask given that framework of the election process the the lack of time to to prepare how do you or how would you consider this election to be a success for for you as the leader of the party i think for me personally it's getting to the end of the election and not having any regrets um and so uh, literally giving it everything I've got at this point and recognizing like <laughs> we're going to do a lot of we're just going to keep coming back to a running race because now I'm at that point in the 800 where it's the last 200 meters you're coming around that last corner you can see the finish line but this is the part of the race where everything hurts mm -hmm. your lungs your heart your muscles are screaming the lactic acid is building up and you have two choices at this point in a race. You kind of 
let go and figure, okay, I'm going to accept that I'm going to come in third or fourth or maybe last, or you find that push and somehow your brain overcomes everything that your body is telling you and you make your legs go faster. Uh, well, and, and Sonia, what a beautiful analogy. Cause I've been in races like that, n not political kind of races. I'll never do that. But uh, <laughs> I've been in those races where you're, you're nearing the end. And like you said, everything hurts. And usually what they tell you to do is they hand you these nasty gel things. And they're like, eat that. I don't know. Maybe that'll help. So I, I, I'm curious about what are some of those nasty gel things that people are handing you to try and get you to finish? But what ultimately is going to allow you to finish? Because because I know what, what allow most people to finish the race is the vision of why they started the race. Yeah. And so what is that vision in your mind as you're coming around the corner? And what nasty gel tablets are you trying to avoid? <laughs> so the literal gel tablets are the, the power bars, the peanut butter. <laughs> oh, the bar. cliff ones? And yeah, and, yeah it, and literally, and my um, wonderful son, Nicholas, is constantly handing me food so that, <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> it's not Skeletor coming over the finish line. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it because it's good to, it's a good reminder to myself to, to stay in that place of why, why am I here? Why are we here? Um, and it's, you know, it goes back well beyond why I got into politics, what happened in Shawnigan with the watershed and the contaminated landfill permit. Mm -hmm. And it goes, it goes, I think, to something that's very core, has always been part of me, which is this idea that um, we can be better, we can do better, we can, we can treat each other better, we can be kinder. We can be more compassionate and empathetic. Um, and I think we need that now more than any other time in so many ways. We have so many crises and challenges that we're facing. And instead of what we see so much in politics, which is this kind of polarization and dehumanization of others, um, starting with our opponents in, in these political races, and going right down to the human beings in our in our society, um, I'm here because I think we need. I, I I really do. I say it a lot, but it's not a message. I really do think we need to do politics differently. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm grateful that people are noticing that there can be a different tone, uh, and I and I'm grateful that people recognize that they appreciate that and that they like it um, that we can debate ideas and policies uh, but we don't have to be uh, terrible to the people that we're debating with we can you know we can hold them to account fiercely I think I've been quite fierce at, in many times in this election but it's it's I'm holding them to account for their decisions and their actions not for who they are as a human being hmm. Love that. Um, and it's, uh, it's another area that I'm, I'm super curious to go in, and maybe we can kind of shift to, towards the debate here. Um, but you, you talk about your opponents and, and running against one another. And, and of course, we're all familiar with smear campaigns that take place. And, and you use the word dehumanization, which is um, absolutely apt. Um, what is your approach to running against someone like Premier Horgan, who you've worked side by side with for the, the past few years and, and you need to collaborate with. I mean, that someone like that, who then it is the tables shift so drastically and quickly. Um, how does that dynamic work? And I, I'm reminded of um, one of our previous guests, Jason Dorland, taught us that the word competition, actually, the, the, the root of the word from, uh, from Greek means to strive together. Mm -hmm. And that, that's such an antithesis from what we often see in politics. It's definitely mm -hmm. not about striving together. Um, it's about crushing the opponent and, and humiliating mm -hmm. them, um, which is, is in, in my opinion, at least not the tactic that you're choosing. But at the same time, it, it's, uh, it's definitely not common to see opponents politically striving together. So 
how how has that been for you um, in, in this campaign? That's it. <laughs> I'm going to go back to running when I was in grade eight, I think. Um, so I won the city championships in grade eight, in grade seven for the 800 meter running uh, race. And then in grade eight, this other girl showed up from another school, um, Krista. And we were built the same. We're going to look the same. Our strides were the same. And at first we were just, you know, fiercely competitive. And then we re- recognized very, very quickly that we really liked each other. Hmm. Um, and so we, we, we did exactly that. We strived together. We pushed each other to be the better runner. We pushed each other because we ran together all the time. We were on the same track team ultimately. And we, our strides literally matched perfectly. And this one time she and I were running around in Edmonton and we had matching hair, matching track suits, matching strides. And this, this car, this person in the car was sort of watching us and they almost had a car accident. They were like, what the heck? You know, these sort of, and I think that, that it fits perfectly. And I've been talking about this a lot in the campaign, like on the other side of an election, all of us need to strive together to serve the people of the province, right? And, and so, sure, we can have these election campaigns, which should ultimately be about the vision that every party and every leader holds for the province. What's our vision of the future? Because that's what we're doing. We're shaping the future with every decision we make. But then when we get into the legislature, it's so much better. We've seen it in the last three and a half years. It's so much better when you're actually listening to each other rather than, you know, relentlessly dismissing what the what anybody else has to say mm-hmm. <laughs> like and i keep going back to this there's no other realm other than politics where that would be seen as a reasonable way to approach your job right mm-hmm. no i am not going to listen to anybody else i mean it reminds <laughs> me wrong. of that's toddlers right i mean that's the yeah. only other people that do that <laughs> I, I, you know the social studies teachers and the math teachers are firmly opposed to each other and will never speak to each other ever again right Right. like it's laughable yeah except that the stakes are so high in politics because we're making decisions that that impact everybody's lives right now but also impact the future future lives for so long and so i i've talked about this a lot like we should be and i like the way you put it we should be striving together mm-hmm. we should be saying how do we make each other the best we can be how do we how do we work so that we're we're incorporating all the best ideas from the from the three parties and all parties have good ideas um you know but instead we we take this kind of position of like Either that's my idea and you can't have it, or if it's your idea, then it must be terrible. Therefore, I'm going to ignore it. I think we we it's the time for us. To, you know, we're not toddlers. We need to mature. Let's 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 become adults in how we do this. Absolutely, Sonia. I'm really curious about your process for preparing for the debate. Uh, we've interviewed a lot of performers, musicians, artists, and they all kind of say the same thing that sort of right before they're like literally just terrified. I mean, some of them, you know, feel like they're going to vomit, you know, like they're so scared. But then when the moment comes, they're in the moment and they kill it. And I'm just wondering if if that mirrored your experience. No. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So what was yours like then? (laughs) Okay. So um, I, I, Worked with the team. We did some Zoom and we had Maeve and, and Nicholas, my son, um, Maeve, my Maeve, my Maeve, my best friend. Um, uh, and we did debate prep on Sunday. And so we kind of walked through what the how the debate would go. Um, and Maeve was an excellent uh she was excellent at being the other the others um (laughs) yeah but it made me super nervous it was i've been really calm and really kind of grounded through the whole campaign but the practice made me really anxious Hmm. and so then i thought okay monday i'm I'm, it's thanksgiving i'm just going to rest i'm going to not think about this i'm going to do a lot of meditation Uh, i'm going to go for walks with the dog and the kids and and just kind of 
regroup and and just get back to a place where I'm feeling really really good. And then Tuesday, the day of the debate was hilarious. So uh, I had three live CBC interviews between seven and eight thirty in the morning. Wow. Two of which I did in the car parked on the side of the highway <laughs> because I was on my way to the couch in all candidates debate, which started at I had to be there at nine thirty. Um, and so then I had to do a, a debate first thing in the morning, yeah. right? From, uh, I guess it was nine to 1030. Um, and then the, the, the only goal of course was to get to Vancouver, but we had wind warnings that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to book various ways that I would get to Vancouver if one way wouldn't work. So if the helijet got canceled, then I could fly out of YVR. And, and so we felt, Okay, we, we got this covered. But then there's a rock slide on the Malahan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, you can get through the Malahan, but it's going to be really slow and you don't know how that's going to go. And maybe, the, you know, things could go sideways. So, okay, shift everything, book a, a helijet out of Nanaimo and book a Harbor Air out of Nanaimo. Just kind of like, I have, you know, if, if it means swimming, I have to get to Vancouver, <laughs> right? And so we end up on the Harbor Air from Nanaimo to Vancouver and I'm with Nicholas and... It, the the pilot says, okay, it's going to be a bit bumpy when we take off and then it'll smooth out and then it'll be bumpy when he, and he's like, no, no, no. It, it's going to be bumpy the whole time. Yeah. And I'm, okay, I can do this. And so we're sitting there and Nicholas is across the aisle from me. He's 26 and uh, big and strong and very calm, always has been. And uh, we take off and it's, it's doing that kind of back and forth. And then all of a sudden, it drops right and thankfully we all had our seat belts tied up pretty tightly but everything went up in the air wow. right? and, <laughs> all, and uh, so i grabbed nicholas's hand i'm holding his hand um and just imagining white light around the whole plane and thinking okay I, i'm gonna have to co-pilot this plane now with all the white light <laughs> <laughs> and so then we land and we're kind of in this joyful giddiness of like yay we're alive and it's all gonna be okay and then, uh, you know, met up with the team in Vancouver. Maeve had come over on the ferry and and uh, there'd been rainbows all the way. We all saw rainbows and yeah. Evan on his way over saw a rainbow landing on a pot of orcas. And wow. we had rainbows all the way from Duncan to Nanaimo, including one rainbow like right on the car, which I've never seen. This is a lot of rainbows. <laughs> and so we were really in this happy, excited state. Um, got dressed, got ready, got makeup on, which was also kind of fun because I've never done that before. <laughs> uh, and then drove over and we were singing songs in the car, choosing our favorite songs and and really in the state of like, this is it. I mean, what have I got to lose? I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm going to introduce myself to the people of British Columbia. I'm just going to be me. Who else can I be? And so everything was so great and i was in such a great state i was really calm and really feeling very you know grounded but also excited and happy and then i get on the stage and i realize in the the debate there's leader to leader questions there's four times when there's leader to leader questions and we'd practice this in our practice room Uh, and then i realized I didn't have a copy of my questions. (laughs) And so I was in a total panic. (laughs) And, and I, I went through all the stages of grief. I went through denial. (laughs) And so I was like, Maeve and Evan were way at the back of the the auditorium, like little Maeve and Evan. And I'm mouthing at them. I don't have the questions. And, And I'm like, can't they tell what I'm saying? And of course they're they're totally oblivious. And then I think I'll write a note. And so I write a note and I'm holding it up. I don't have the question. And of course they can't see it. Like it'd be like an actor on a stage holding up a little note, somebody at the back. Right. So that's what my denial, my bargaining, and then total fear. The questions have, the, the debate has begun. Andrew Wilkinson's answering the first question and I can't understand what he's saying <laughs> i'm just like oh my god there's words and they're not making it into my brain <laughs> and so total fear and then anger ah how did this happen and then acceptance and just realizing all i've got is me 
and mm. I've just got to figure out how to make this work. And mm. uh, oh. on the first question, I, I, I didn't even actually really get to a question. Um, <laughs> but by the second, third and fourth question, I had planned ahead during the debate. I, I had my notebook, so I was noting things down. And I just got back to that place of being uh, centered and grounded. But no, it was quite the opposite of what you described. I went in so calm and then had like five minutes of the purest panic that I think I've ever felt in my life. And the only person who recognized what was happening was Nicholas. He was at the back of the auditorium as well, but not with Maeve and Evan. And he was like, I have never seen my mother so stressed Aww. in my entire life. And he could see all my body language, my hands and <laughs> the way I was holding. He, he abs and he's like, I'm going to stretch out and just send her relaxed feelings. And I'm just big breaths, mom. And, uh, and then, uh, we got there. But yeah, so that's the untold story of debate night. And wow. you are the first on the record to hear what actually happened. That's amazing, Sonia. And Tony Robbins has a famous saying where he says, things don't happen to us, they happen for us. <laughs> do you believe that? Do, do you believe that in the end, that that, that might have been a good thing? Or is it too early to say that? It's gonna, it might take me a little while to get there. <laughs> okay. Now, it makes for, it, it, you know, 10 years from now, this will be the story I'm telling. And I have the little crumpled up note here. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep it. It's, it's a very funny story now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's a story of, in the end, I, of, having believing in myself enough to come around to okay i've i'm i'm okay in this but this was the um there it is there it is amazing (laughs) (laughs) um amazing. we're gonna ask Maeve to send us a a photo of that for uh for a, a little addition to the the podcast when it comes out that's um, that is an amazing story and and thank you so much for sharing it with us. It's like it's so real and natural and the the best part of the story is like is what comes next and the public reaction to your debate was so mm. positive. It, yeah. And because it seemed natural, it was authentic, it it was clear that you weren't following talking points. It was almost as if you didn't even have notes, right? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, de- I definitely did not have notes. <laughs> that wasn't an act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, no <laughs> I think I think there's people. The the public is starving for that from yes from their politicians. Is they want people to be real and to actually speak to them and and not just follow the platform. And and one of the questions that was uh, admittedly a very tough question, but about white privilege and. The, the reaction from the other two candidates was they kind of bumbled their way through it and then had to apologize for what they said afterwards. I mean, it, w- it was well-intentioned, but it was just didn't come across well. And, and the, the way you approached that question was, um, was very strong and real and natural. And, and I wonder if, is, is that a question you'd thought about beforehand? Mm-hmm. Is, that, uh, is kind of coming to terms with your own white privilege? Is that something mm-hmm. that, that you've been working on personally of late um i i wonder where that that answer came from yeah i i would say it's it's all of those things i mean certainly as um what unfolded in the u.s um and and the the black lives matter the black lives matters kind of movement that that we watched um unfold and participated in in many ways um certainly uh, I spent a lot of time reflecting on 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 my own privilege of course and on what it means to be white uh, at a time like this and there was a you know there was a there was a day when we were trying to put out a, a tweet thread uh, from the caucus and we really struggled between Adam, Olson and and me and our staff in how to speak, how to, you know, where do we start? Where do we come from? And I think that 
that struggle then um, meant that, you know, the, and the reflection since then meant that when that question came, I, I had been reflecting. And I do remember the conversation I had with Blaze um, when we talked about, you know, our 14-year-old son and, and that, you know, really coming to terms with imagining what that would feel like as a mother to think, you know, my son is in danger because of the color of his skin and he's not in danger. He's in danger from the police because of the color of his skin. And I think mm-hmm. um, that we had that conversation. I also worked um, when we, we have our couch and leadership group and we invited Lynn Weaver, who's the uh, couch and intercultural society executive director to come speak to our group. And, and she talked about, you know, it's not enough to be, you know, wanting to be inclusive or wanting to celebrate diversity. We actually have to be anti-racist. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and that that isn't a passive mm-hmm. uh, thing. It has to be an active thing. And, uh, and part of that, going into that conversation, I thought a lot about my own unconscious biases and, and catching myself uh, you know, reacting to people and and being able to have that kind of other uh, sort of view on my own unconscious thoughts and being able to say, hmm, where does that come from? And can you justify that? And, and every time, you know, no. And so, yes, I have been reflecting, I have been working, and I think that all of us, there's it's not a, it's not something that's going to be done or fixed or dealt with in any time soon but we have to start with what i said the other night we have systemic racism i've seen it very clearly in the child welfare system we see it in so many ways in in government um, and then we have the racism that people of color that black people that indigenous people experience daily almost moment to moment in their lives and as a white woman i i don't know what that experience is but i can listen and hear and ask questions and want to know more and and that's what i've been doing well sonia what what you're describing is empathy And, and you seem to have it seeing through another person's eyes walking in their shoes and empathy is, is not often a word connected to politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you think you have empathy? Where does that come from? And how, how, how is that a strength for you as a leader in, 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 in your mm-hmm. campaign? I don't know where if it comes. I mean, I, this is who I am. I've, 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 I can think back to my childhood and um, really always trying to understand other people i mean i'm i'm not perfect i am no saint i i have plenty of flaws and foibles and times when i'm not nearly as empathetic as i would like to be um but i strive for it um and i think that it's it's one thing that i don't want to ever lose i i've talked about this a lot that i you know the most important thing, and I've said this to the other candidates running, is that on the other side of an election campaign or on the other side of being elected, the other side of being leader of a political party, I want to emerge fully and entirely myself. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to be changed by this. I I want to still be laughing at myself and making fun of myself and um you know, I still want to be as empathetic as I can, ideally more empathetic because I will have learned about more people's experiences. I will have grown to understand. And I think in the last three and a half years, I have grown to be more empathetic about about people's experience that I didn't know before I was an MLA. Hmm. Um, and that's so important to me. I, I, I do not want to lose myself in this. I do not want to give up what it, what makes me me. It's not worth it, <laughs> you know, um, because I can I can do good work 
in many capacities. I don't have to be a leader of a political party or elected to do work that I think is valuable for my community and for the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can't do that work if I give up who I am. Love that. And, and I love the sense that um, y- your sense of doing good work is, is for the community and, and for the people around you, um, w- which is not always the, the mindset of, of politicians. And I think that's the, the, the lack of self-interest um, that, you, that you show there is one of the reasons that, that uh, you come across as so approachable. And in terms of the empathy piece, one thing that we've noticed since the pandemic is that there, I think there's been a startling lack of empathy and, and people have kind of shrunk back into themselves a bit because of all the fear and anxiety that's going around. And, and as we know, when, when our minds are full of fear and panic and worry, we lose empathy. Like we, we're not able to be fearful and empathetic at the same time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how, um, if we can talk about the pandemic and, and the reaction to the pandemic a little bit, um, the shift there, the focus has been really on public health for, for good reason. Um, our, our province has done an okay job. Uh, at one point, we all thought we were doing an incredible job of, of controlling COVID and, and keeping it uh, at bay. And, and now it's a little bit more out in the open and and part of the reason for that is because we want a bit of a return to normalcy and we want kids to be able to be in schools and that just naturally there's going to be more cases. Um, but there's a lot of businesses that have not returned to normal and that are still very sick and, and struggling really hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I work in the events industry and, and we've just been decimated um, and we've been forced to be super creative and, and we're doing okay with that. But a lot of businesses have not that they just don't even really have that option with their their business model um so i i wonder what you would say to those businesses who are looking for more hope in in just a sea of never-ending uncertainty um we know we have no idea when this is going to end when things are going to actually kind of go back to business as usual so what would you say to those businesses um who are frustrated by uh, what they perceive as just the only focus is on stopping the spread of COVID while their businesses and their neighbors' businesses are dying and and they're suffering mental health issues as a result. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked the question. And and it's interesting. My my son is also in the events in the events industry. He had just gotten a, a really great job at the Delta, and he was in charge of the AV kind of planning for events and highly skilled and uh, had done training and had worked his way up to this position. And and we were all so delighted and excited for him. And he was just thriving in, in the job. And that, uh, that was brought to an abrupt end, of course, in March. And, Mm. um, so very close to home. I mean, he's talking about exactly this, which is, you know, the skills that he has, they can be applied with, you know, helping out in this kind of way, but um, that industry is in a lot of trouble. And, and and so I think, one, we have to, we have to start, and, and, and I think this applies in so many ways across the board. We start with the reality we're in. We can't, we can't be in the reality we wish we were in. We, we start with the reality we're in. And then as you say, that the, there's some businesses that have found a way to pivot and to get creative and to be able to find a way to adapt and thrive in this new reality and others are really struggling. And so um, what government's role could be in this is, is to find that capacity. You know, when we talk about innovation hubs, right? How do we share that that innovation and that creativity across uh, different businesses and different sectors? Right? If 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 we can capture some of that and and spread it around a bit more, but also what can government do to say, okay, uh, how do we support people with retraining? How do we support industries with 
reshaping and, and reframing. And, and one of the things we've put in our platform is this billion dollar innovation fund, right? And that's for businesses that are looking at how to become more climate friendly, but, but it can also be applied very much to this moment that we're in, which is if you need to pivot and that pivot is going to take some support from government, that's what we should be here for. And so we should be, as you, your, your statement about you can't be fearful and empathetic at the same time. I'd say you can't be fearful in almost anything at the same time. Like mm -hmm. fear is the, the great sort of squasher, squasher of everything, the right? mind killer, so yeah. It's very hard to be creative when you're fearful. It's very hard to be uh, forward thinking. Mm -hmm. We get very trapped in the moment we're in, in that fear. And it, it, it undermines our ability to, to, to achieve so much, right? And so if we could be finding ways to alleviating that fear and, and you know, on the political side, we've talked about helping businesses with their rents, getting grants to the tourism sector quickly, not this kind of complicated, convoluted process that is out there right now. Um, but I think we could also just be really leaning into we're in this time of enormous transition and and government can be acting as a, a kind of handmaid to that transition right but to do that we have to be honest and realistic about the time we're in and where we failed in that in other realms is is things like climate change like if we'd begun transitioning our economy 20 years ago we wouldn't be in this crisis that we're in, both in terms of impacts from climate change, but also in terms of like the shock that it's going to have to be to, to make things change more quickly than they should have to. And so let's learn from that, right? Let's look at this moment and say, where do we get those great ideas? Let's, let's, get, let's hear from the, the companies and the industries that have pivoted and help spread that out more widely to everybody, to all the businesses and, and help ensure that we can have that you know we could call it the great pivot the great pivot of 2020 right i love that mm -hmm. you know you know the image of you standing on the stage um supposed to speak without your notes um is the same image i have with just society and businesses when covid hit it's like there's no playbook and we have no idea what to do and so we just need to move forward mm -hmm. and i'm just thinking the importance of collaboration and connecting and sharing information um, has mm -hmm. to be paramount. And I'm just wondering what your vision of that is, um, how we can begin to move to working together as opposed to apart and sharing information as opposed to keeping it for selfish purposes. What, what does that mm -hmm. look like for you? I'm not sure if, I, if we talked about this in the last thing, but I, when I talked to you guys last time, but I, I had this neighborhood captain's idea and and one of the one of the things that I reflected on a lot when I was imagining that was that in emergencies it they often bring out the best of us in the moment of crisis and we saw that with covid the pots banging mm -hmm. and the hearts on the windows and people looking you know checking in on their neighbors and that kind of upswelling of, of empathy and compassion and caring I mean we, we we followed the guidelines because we were acting not necessarily completely from selfish interest, but from interest of wanting to protect everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we how do we capture and capitalize on that that capacity that we have to be at our best in emergencies that can often translate later when things are are more and more challenging into the fear and the lack of empathy. So if we have those structures in place that actually um, really contribute to building that empathetic connection right at a neighborhood level, um, we can use those structures then to be more collaborative, to be more communicative. So um, you can almost see it as a, you know, you start at the neighborhood captain level where one person is sort of in charge of making sure that the 30 households in, in his or her little captain area are connected we mm -hmm. know that we're all okay we're buddied up we're we're taking care of each other and then you build that up the captains are connected by community captains and they're connected by regional captains and you can start seeing how you could share capacity and information and and share just share across these kinds of boundaries and 
if we if we kind of more localize our ways of being, then we can say in our region, this is how we're going to support our local businesses. This is how we're going to, you know, that events industry business, that wedding planning business, um, they can plan our online events or they can plan our socially distanced outside events or, you know, they can help us uh, with our, our celebrations in our little neighborhood or whatever it is, but looking at it as um, we're all we're all here for each other. We're all connected. And, and, and I think we have to build that connectivity and we can't be passive. We can't wait for it to happen. Mm-hmm. We have to actually lean into it and, and make this a path going forward. And I think it's not just COVID, but with climate change and the disruptions we're seeing, we do need that, that real resiliency at a neighborhood to neighborhood level, but that can translate into resiliency at a social and economic level that I don't think we've even imagined uh, we've tapped into, we could tap into, right? Um, 100%. And it it goes back to, you know, we've become this global community and we're purchasing things that who knows, we don't know anything about where they're made or who made them or anything like that. But if we kind of re-village in some ways um, and we, we, recognize that as people do well and businesses do well in our kind of village notion then we're all going to do well out of that right absolutely it's it's a lot of it's a big shift in thinking i think yeah and and, i mean that is where true connection happens as we know that the online connections the social media connections they're they're not super authentic and and some you know there's there's outliers on that there's there's people who can meet online and, and have developed real connection but the majority of the connections we make on on the internet we don't even know if we're talking to a person or a robot a lot of the time um but the connections in the community with our neighbors and with people we really care about and 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 need around us that that's what really matters um i I know we're coming to the the end of our time sadly um but you've probably got to go and fly a plane or save the world or something like this at 10 o'clock um but i i wanted to as we bring the conversation to a close i we talked a lot about the impact that your father had in, in the mm. first episode. And I was just curious. I, I thought it might be a, a nice way to, to begin to wrap mm. up here. And I, I wonder what parts of him you're bringing with you as you're nearing the finish line of, of this, this great race. I was just talking to him about him to my son, Nicholas. Nicholas knew dad, um, dad, dad died when Nicholas was seven. So they had a a lovely uh, relationship. And, and one of the, one of the key things about this campaign is it's been surprisingly, maybe very joyful. Um, And I, I was saying to Nicholas, I used to think that my dad was just lucky. He just had this happy disposition and he was just always happy and joyful and kind of curious and appreciative of the world uh, by nature. And and I asked him about it once when I was about 20. And I said, you know, you're just one of these lucky people that's always happy and cheerful and positive. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not. No. He said, I make the choice hmm. every day, every moment I make the choice. And I think that in some ways this campaign has been um for me this sort of intense learning experience about making that choice in every moment every day not to rail against you know the injustice of it or the unfairness or anything like that but to look out the window and see the beautiful fall leaves and the sunshine to see the rainbows to be so grateful to be spending my days with nicholas and mave my my bubble and then going home to, you know, Blaze and the kids and the dog and feeling that deep gratitude, but also joy uh, in this. And I think that I have finally really come to understand my dad and how he chose to be in the world uh, over the course of this campaign. Mm. You know, Sonia, um, one of the things I, I appreciate about you the most 
is just how homegrown and assess- accessible you are. I mean, your face is everywhere. I pass a million of your signs every day. And, um, but what prompted this conversation was you're just in downtown Duncan sitting outside the Chocolate Pearl. Shout out to Chocolate Pearl, folks. Um, and, and eating your chocolates and you just said, hey, we should come back on your show. Let's, let's, let's get talking. It was just that casual. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't have to go through like your people's, <laughs> to, we didn't have to do that to make this happen. You're just, you're, you're, you're just living, walking in the community, eating local chocolates. And, and that comes out in, in what you say and how you, how you present yourself. And I think that's, that's authenticity. And so I, I appreciate that very much uh, about how you are. And, and, um, I think, I think the people are seeing that whether it's in a debate or, you know, in the local streets of Duncan or wherever you are. So, so thank you for that. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, John. And I, I just really have to give a shout out to Maeve here because, um, you know, she, she was there that day when we were in Duncan and of course connected, we're connected because of Maeve mm-hmm. and, uh, that joy that I get to have has a lot to do with me being able to spend time with her and, uh, just love her so much. And, uh, she did help organize this, and uh, I'm grateful for to her for that. But uh, you know, getting to know both of you has been a real gift, and I'm getting the the roll up sign here from Maine, so I'm just going to say thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, us too. It's been an absolute pleasure, and, and good luck, and, and finish strong, and and we'll be cheering for you. So th- thanks so much for the time today, and and uh, everything that that brought it here. So. Um, Best of luck, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you. See you soon. See you. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us at all the usual places. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. We're very active on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Obstacle Course Podcast. And speaking of Facebook, we have a great new growing community called the Obstacle Course Community that you can join, dialogue with Andrew and I and your fellow listeners about the previous week's episode and any obstacles you're dealing with. And we do appreciate reviews, whether it's on iTunes, Google, Facebook, whatever. It helps people find the podcast. And it has nothing to do with our fragile egos. Well... Uh, You know, we just like to hear back from great people just like yourselves. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep pushing through those obstacles.